Our text for today is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, which is really a continuation of the text for last week, which was verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. And so I'm going to read beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, as I told you last Sunday, there are two very difficult statements in these three verses, verses 19 through 21 of First Peter, considered by many to be the most difficult statements in the whole New Testament to interpret properly. The first difficult statement that we dealt with last Sunday is the one about Christ preaching to the Spirit's in prison. And if you were here last Sunday, I explained that I have concluded that this is talking about the announcement by Christ after his resurrection, but before he ascended back to heaven, to a group of spirits in Tartarus, confined there since the days of Noah, when they had committed abominable disobedience toward God. And there, Christ announced to them his victory over sin and Satan, his victory over the demons, and his triumph in redemption. The second difficult statement, by the way, if you want to hear the details of that exegesis, you'll need to go back to uh, listen to the sermon last week, which you can download from Sermon Audio. The second difficult statement in this passage is the one about baptism, which now saves us. And maybe in many ways that's even more difficult than the first. What is this talking about? Does this teach baptismal regeneration? As those who believe that doctrine would certainly press this text uh, into supporting. Uh, Is this telling us that we are saved in whole or in part by water baptism? A surface reading of the text might seem to indicate that explanation. And if that is not what it means, as I'm sure all, or nearly all, I hope all of us here today are already convinced, then what is Peter saying? This is a most difficult statement indeed as we look at it. In which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. What is that all about if it's not about baptismal regeneration? Well, this is another very technical study and is going to require an an analytical approach as we were required to do last week. So here's the way we're going to approach our text today. In five areas, number one, consider, consider the surrounding context. Number two, consider the puzzling declaration. Third, consider the subsequent modifiers. Fourth, consider the intended meaning. And number five, consider the important implications. 
That's our work. Let's see if we can do it in the time that is generally allotted to the sermon. Consider, first of all, the surrounding context. All texts must be considered in their context. And we should consider the context, first the larger context, and then the more immediate one. The larger context would be the whole book of 1 Peter preceding the statement. Everything is leading up to it. And what is it that Peter is trying to uh, say in our text that ties in with what he has said before? And I would call your attention to a couple of emphases that we have already seen in this book very clearly. Number one is Peter's emphasis upon the pilgrim status of God's children. That God's children are like pilgrims wandering through a foreign country. God's children are a small minority amidst an alien majority. The book opens with that. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He takes that up again in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So Peter has established that the ones he's writing to are pilgrims in a foreign land, spiritually speaking. And, in fact, all Christians are in that category and need to understand that and consider ourselves to be such. And then, secondly, we've noticed how much Peter has emphasized suffering and trials and persecution, which seems to be tied very much to this pilgrim status. And maybe at least the persecution part was more reality to them than to us, but there are forms of persecution that all of God's children endure wherever we are in the world, And there are certainly many trials and sufferings that pertain to us all. And that's a large emphasis. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tried or tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or consider chapter 2, verse 20, speaking to slaves. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Suffering, unjust suffering. And we've seen that again in chapter 3, leading up to our text for today. Notice verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So, this emphasis upon pilgrims in a foreign land, this emphasis upon suffering, trials, and persecution that is the lot of God's children because we are a minority surrounded by an unbelieving and sinful majority in this world. That's the larger context. Now, in the immediate context, we have what we looked at last Sunday in verses 19 and 20, namely that Christ achieved and announced victory over demons. Again, back to verse 19, verse 18, Christ was put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, by whom 
he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So in the immediate context, we have this reference to Christ achieving victory over Satan and the forces of Satan, the demons, and announcing that victory after his resurrection, these demons who were very active in the world in the days of Noah, who through the unbelieving majority in Noah's day were actually active in oppressing and persecuting Noah and his family. But Christ triumphed over them. And then he goes on to say that God delivered Noah and judged the ungodly of his day. In verse 20, with this reference to the flood, not only did Christ achieve victory over the demons and announce that to them on his way back to heaven, but in the days of Noah, God judged the wicked majority, but saved, delivered through the flood, through the water, Noah and his family. And so the contextual application would be something like this. Though you, dear readers of Peter's epistle, are a persecuted minority in your day, just like Noah was in his day, and though you, dear Christian friend, are oppressed by the unbelieving majority in your day, just like Noah was in his day, do not forget that God will severely judge the unbelievers even as he did in Noah's day. And do not forget that God will deliver you safely through your trials, even as he did Noah and his family in their day. Now that's the main emphasis for why Peter wrote these these words that we are looking at as our text today. It is a word of encouragement. Dear Christian friend, suffering trials, persecutions, difficulties, don't lose sight of the big picture. Christ has already gained the victory. And God has promised to deliver you safely through your trials. And God has also promised to judge the unbelievers who are even now oppressing you. So take heart. Don't be discouraged. Why should you be downcast? And so the purpose of the text is to encourage beleaguered believers by reminding them of judgment and deliverance. And these themes of judgment and deliverance are very much in the mind of Peter as he writes our puzzling text for today. Now that brings us secondly to consider the puzzling declaration, which takes up the last part of verse 20 and the rest of verse 21. We'll concentrate on the first part of verse 21. He talks about the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Now, before we get into the question of baptism, let's first of all notice the historical accuracy of the account of the flood. Christ, you know, referred to Noah's flood to teach the coming of judgment. As, for example, in this text in Luke 17... When Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage 
until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus believed that the flood of Noah's day was an historical event. And Peter believed that the flood of Noah's day was an historical event. Even the details. He even refers to the eight people, the eight souls, not just their spiritual part, but souls referring to their whole beings. The eight people who were saved out of the flood, namely Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. This, this accurate detail of eight individuals who were saved is referred to by Peter. So it's clear that both Jesus and Peter considered the flood to be accurate and reliable history. It is factual. But now we come to this question of baptism. The reference to the flood in verse 20, and then its relationship to baptism in verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. Now the first question is, what baptism does Peter have in view? Spirit baptism or water baptism? I only raise that because there are some who always take refuge in difficult baptismal texts by fleeing to the concept of baptism by the Spirit rather than baptism in water. And, of course, there is a baptism by the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. There is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptism by the Holy Spirit. And Paul here says that's when the Holy Spirit baptizes believers into Christ. That is when the Holy Spirit places us into Christ. When the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, that is the baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ. And that, by the way, is the baptism which saves. It is spiritual. It is not Watery. But is that what Peter's talking about here? Hardly. It could not be more clear that he's talking about water baptism. You really, this is one text that there's no exegetically honest way to refer this to spirit baptism because it's clear that he is, an, he is making a comparison between the waters of the flood on the one hand and the waters of baptism on the other hand. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. There's a comparison between the souls of Noah's day and us, believers today. There's a comparison between the salvation of Noah's day and the salvation of believers today. There's a comparison between the waters of the flood in Noah's day and the waters of baptism experienced by believers in our day. So, we cannot talk about spirit baptism in this text, in which this flood, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, or maybe more literally, saved through this water. Saved through this water. And Peter is obviously looking backward to the flood when he says this water, and he's looking forward to baptism when he says this water. You probably ought to know that the term baptism is a distinctly New Testament term, unknown in the Greek before New Testament times. 
There are a lot of implications in that that we don't have time to go into now. But this is one of several words that has been introduced into the Greek language in the pages of the New Testament that was either formulated or borrowed out of obscurity to teach something new, something distinctly Christian. And baptism is one such word. But the question is, what baptism is in view? And the answer is water baptism. Peter's talking about water baptism. Now, second question is, what is an antitype? Peter says, in verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. An antitype that corresponds to the waters of the flood that evidently serve as the type. An antitype is something that corresponds to a type. Now, this kind of terminology, type, antitype terminology, though it's common in theology, is actually only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's found in Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. And there we read, Therefore it was necessary that the copy, or copies rather, of the things in the heavens, hold on to that word copies, the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now appear to appear in the presence of God for us. In Hebrews 9, what we have is a type and an antitype. The type is the tabernacle of Moses, the sanctuary, the offerings, the various ceremonies and rituals, the priesthood what the high priest did in that sanctuary of Moses, that tabernacle. But we are told here that Christ is the fulfillment of that which was a picture, that which was a type. Christ is the antitype, and Christ doesn't enter into a visible temple, a visible sanctuary, but he enters into the heavenly one. And there he fulfills what that Old Testament tabernacle and all that went along with it was a picture of. The Old Testament mosaic sacrificial system was all a picture of Christ and his salvation. That was the type, Christ and his work upon the cross and his presentation of that work before the Father in heaven is the antitype. Moses, tabernacle, the type. Christ and his redemptive work upon the cross, the antitype. Now, because of that, this concept of type antitype has entered very much into Christian doctrine, Christian theology. The type is the symbol. You might just substitute the word symbol for type. It'll make it easier for you to think through this clearly if you aren't real familiar with this concept of type and antitype. A type means a symbol. An antitype is, therefore, the reality of the symbol... It is a copy of what the symbol looked like, but that's not all that this Greek word, antitupus, means. It can mean a counterpart or an analogy, and this is important because you need to realize that the Greek word antitype has a range of meanings. They're they're all in the same family of ideas, but 
it, it does not necessarily have this technical meaning of being an exact fulfillment of a type. It can also be something that relates to a type, something that corresponds to a type. In, in this type antitype language that Peter uses, we could have, we could have a theological idea of a symbol and the symbol's fulfillment, or we could have a less technical idea of a symbol and something else that is analogous to the symbol, something else that corresponds to the symbol. I think you'll understand the importance of that in a moment. And I'm, I think that Peter is using this word in, in more non-technical language. And what he's saying is baptism is an analogy that corresponds to the waters of the flood. Baptism is an analogy that corresponds to the waters of the flood. And then we need to learn in what ways that that is true. And so that brings me, number third, to consider, well, what is the symbolism of baptism? And actually, baptism is full of instructive symbolism. Let's just mention a few. We could start with this. As the flood cleansed the earth of man's wickedness, so baptism indicates man's cleansing from sin. Or, as the flood separated Noah from the wicked world of his day, so baptism separates believers from the evil world of our day. Or we could say this, the preservation of Noah in the ark is analogous to the salvation of believers in Christ. There are a lot of things. I mean, you can just go on and on with the symbolism. Uh, how was Noah saved? Well, by going into the ark. The ark was the ark of safety. And the very same waters that destroyed the world floated the ark and saved Noah. What saved Noah? Well, we could say the waters did because they boiled up, they, they buoyed up the ark. But, of course, without the ark, the waters wouldn't have saved Noah. They would have destroyed Noah. So what saved Noah? Well, the ark saved Noah. It was the ark that God prepared that allowed him to rise up in the same waters that were judgment to the world and became a means of his salvation. So what saved Noah? Well, actually, God did because God prepared all of this. God prepared the ark but or or commanded its preparation. Noah, of course, actually did the work. But God designed it. God brought it about. And then God placed Noah inside the ark, even as God places believers inside Christ. We are placed into Christ. So that when the judgment falls upon this world, those who are outside of Christ will be destroyed. But those who are in Christ, in the ark of safety, they will be delivered safely through. Beautiful, beautiful pictures. You can just keep spinning symbolism and analogies on and on and on with this baptism uh, flood analogy. We could say, as the ark brought Noah through the flood to a new world, so baptism marks the believer's passage from the old life to a new. Noah and his family stepped into the ark in the old world, full of wickedness. They passed through that in the flood. And when they stepped out on the other side, they were in a brand new world. 
Now, when God places a believer in Jesus Christ, he dies to the old world, and he is now in a new world, and baptism symbolizes that. When a person is baptized, they go down into the waters of baptism. That's the death of the old life. They come up testifying that they have been made new in Christ Jesus and that they are now followers of Jesus Christ. They are alive to a new life that they did not have before. That's symbolized in baptism. D.A. Carson says, baptism, and I'm quoting him now exactly, baptism which regularly stands by metonymy for salvation. And this will help us with some of the puzzling texts. Baptism which regularly stands by metonymy for salvation. Now you say, what is metonymy? What is a metonym? It's a figure of speech in which the part stands for the whole. When the captain says, all hands on deck, the sailors don't toss their hands up there. Pile of hands on deck. Now, that, that isn't what they do, and that wouldn't help, would it? He means get yourself up here. All hands on deck. And a metonym is, is a figure of speech, a symbol, in which the part stands for the whole. Now, it's interesting that D.A. Carson, who's really one of the finest uh, Bible scholars that I know in our day, says that baptism... Let me read it again. Baptism, which regularly stands by metonymy for salvation. Is he saying that baptism is a part of salvation? Well, in a sense, not in a saving sense, but in a sense. But this helps explain it. And what he's saying is that there are a number of texts in the Bible that relate baptism and salvation so closely together that they seem to be cut out of the same cloth. And that's why we have some who teach baptismal regeneration. And those who teach baptismal regeneration have several texts in the New Testament which they can appeal to, which seem to teach it. But it's because of this close association, and it's because they have misunderstood the symbolism that is involved. But you find language like this in the New Testament. Language like this in Acts 22.16, when Paul is explaining his conversion, and he's... uh, talking about uh, Ananias, who spoke to him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's about as... Difficult for a Baptist is the text for today in 1 Peter 3, 21, isn't it? Unless we keep all these things in mind. I think uh, the same thing is true in that text that's true in our text here in 1 Peter, that there is a close relationship between baptism and salvation, but it's the symbol. It's the symbol of, of the inward reality, the outward symbol of the inward reality. That's no doubt what Paul is saying in Galatians 3, 27. When he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now some have assumed that's talking about spirit baptism, but it doesn't seem to be. Because it's talking about something that we do. We submit to baptism, and when we do, we put on Christ. And the idea there is that we go forth to live for Christ. Because by identifying ourselves with Christ in baptism, we put on Christ. Now, obviously, we, we couldn't do that unless we'd been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. If there is no inward work, a spiritual work, then 
You can be baptized a hundred times and it doesn't make you a Christian. You can be baptized a hundred times and that gives you no more ability to live for Christ than you had before. But if you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, when you submit to water baptism, you are declaring to the world that I have put on Christ. I am a follower of Christ. I pledge to live my life for Christ. As many of you as have been baptized have put on Christ. Don't forget it. Don't forget your baptismal vows. That's what Paul seems to be saying in Galatians 3.27. We go down in baptism into death, into the death of a watery grave. We are resurrected up into a new life in Christ. Now one more question before we move on. What is the significance of that word now? There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Now, something that is present, that seems to be different from the past. But what is that? Well, I think this is the now of the New Covenant era. Now, since Christ came, now baptism is the symbol of our being the people of God. Baptism is the symbol of the new covenant. Now, Peter hasn't made any reference here to the symbol of the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant, which is circumcision. But he has made reference to something that even goes back farther than that, namely Noah's flood and the symbolism involved in that. And it seems like he's saying the flood serves serves as a suitable symbol of salvation then, but now in that Christ has come and that we have greater light and greater privileges, there's an even more suitable symbol which has been given to us by Christ himself, namely baptism. And that is now the mark of our conversion. That is now what we look to when we think about salvation. That's the suitable symbol. It's analogous to this old symbol. Now, we still have to consider the subsequent modifiers because Peter doesn't let the the thought drop at the beginning of verse 21, but he goes on to say some things. He says, there is also an antitype which now saves us baptism. And then he says this, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a negative qualification to his statement and two positive qualifications to his statement about baptism now saving us. The negative qualification is this. It's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. There is an antitype which now saves us, baptism, but I don't mean, when I mention baptism, I don't mean the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, I don't mean that the water removes dirt from the body. I don't even mean that the water itself removes moral uncleanness. Evidently, Peter's way of baptizing was by immersion. Otherwise, this symbol of removing the filth of the flesh doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But if in the picture of immersion, where you go down into the water and come out, it does make some sense. Well, what is going on here? Does that water does that water remove anything? 
No. Well, you say, if you go in dusty, you'll come out clean. Yeah, true, but that doesn't do anything spiritually. If you go in dry, you'll come out wet, but that doesn't do anything spiritually. But the water itself doesn't even do anything morally. It's not the water that does this work. Not the water. Not the water. Not the removal of moral uncleanness. Water itself removes neither dirt nor sin. It neither removes dirt on the body nor sin from the soul. That's a negative qualification. And then there are two positive ones. There is a subjective requirement and an objective reality that must be kept in mind with all of this. The subjective requirement, the removal, or the answer rather, of a good conscience toward God. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The answer of a good conscience, that is a conscience free from condemnation. A conscience that has assurance that I have a right standing before God. Now that has to do with the inward man, doesn't it? How do I know that I'm free from condemnation? How do I know that I have a right standing before God? When I have assurance that I belong to Christ, when I have assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all sin, when I have assurance that when I stand before the judgment bar of God, I'm going to stand in the righteousness of Christ, then I have a good conscience that doesn't condemn me. The answer of a good conscience, or that word could be translated pledge of a good conscience. And the word in the Greek seems to refer to a question or an inquiry and probably refers to the questions and answers related to the baptismal candidate. When somebody is going to be baptized, first they are asked a question, sometimes a series of questions, but a question. Have you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is the question I generally use. Sometimes I vary the wording. But Tom Smith, have you become a disciple of Christ? Have you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. What's the answer? Yes, I have. Okay, there's the answer. There's the, the response, the question and answer. That seems to go clear back to Bible days. Remember when the Ethiopian eunuch was hearing about Christ in the chariot, and Philip was preaching to him, and the eunuch got to the place where evidently he believed on Christ, and somehow he knew about baptism, and so he asked for baptism. Uh, now as they went on their way down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. That's sort of an implied question. Do you believe with all your heart? I'm not going to baptize you unless you tell me you do. This isn't just some outward ceremony. This is to reflect an inward reality. You can become a candidate for baptism if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I do. All right. If you believe with all your heart, then you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And or now when they came up out of the water, down into the water, buried in the likeness of his death, up out of the water, raised in the likeness of his 
resurrection. Performed in response to the baptismal question and answer. The answer of a good conscience. Buried in the likeness of his death, of course, the typical baptismal formula comes from Romans 6.4 that we read earlier. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It's all there. It's all there. Buried in his death, we died with Christ symbolically. If we haven't already, this won't do you a bit of good. But this is the symbolism involved. We died with Christ, we are raised with Christ, and henceforth we walk in newness of life. That's our promise, that's our pledge, that's our testimony, that's our declaration, our public profession of faith in Christ, of what has already transpired with Him. It's all there in baptism. It's a pledge to follow Jesus Christ hereafter. That's really what it is. Because Christ has redeemed me, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I pledge that by God's help and grace, I will continue to follow Jesus Christ the rest of my life. Okay? Then I'll baptize you. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now that's the subjective requirement. Baptism doesn't do you a bit of good unless subjectively. It varies from individual to individual and depends upon what's in the heart of each individual. And if somebody claims these things that aren't true, then the baptism isn't going to do you a bit of good. You go in a dry center, come out a wet center. If you don't really have a good conscience toward Christ and what you're doing here, if what you respond to, what you say, is not really the reflection of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to regenerate you, If you have not been born again, then saying so is not going to make it so, and being baptized isn't going to make it so either. But if the subjective reality, the subjective requirement is that you testify that you have been born again, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're a candidate for baptism. And this powerful new covenant symbol should be applied to you, to mark you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now there's also an objective reality. That's the last part of verse 21. All of this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That gets it back on on objective grounds, what has happened historically and what we must believe. We must believe something objectively that Christ did for sinners, and then we must believe something subjectively that we believe that applies to me, that God has done a work in my heart, that I'm a sinner, that Christ has redeemed by his blood and that the Holy Spirit has regenerated by His grace and by His power. So there's a subjective requirement, but it's all based upon an objective reality, and that is seen in the, in the, um, in the Greek construct here, more clearly than in the English, but it really is there very clearly, because what you have is two dia clauses, which are parallel phrases, and they're both preceded by the word through. In verse 20, we have eight souls were saved through water. In verse 21, we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a Greek reader of Peter's epistle, I think, would have recognized the immediate correspondence, the immediate parallelism here. Noah was saved through water, verse 20. We are saved through the resurrection of Christ, verse 21. Kind of jumps all over the symbolism and gets down to the heart of it. 
The baptism is a symbol. It's an analogy. It corresponds to the, the waters of Noah's flood can become a symbol, an analogy of salvation. And the waters of believer's baptism are a symbol, an analogy of salvation. But here's the reality. Noah was saved through water. We are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is union with Christ and His death and resurrection that is proclaimed in baptism. But it's our union with Christ that saves us. Again, Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Noah was saved through water. We are saved through the resurrection of Christ. And, of course, that's the shorthand for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and its application to our soul. There's no resurrection unless there was first a death. Now let's quickly consider the intended meaning, something like this, and I'll try to stick to my notes and read it for sake of time. As the flood of Noah's day is a powerful symbol of deliverance from judgment through a means provided by God, so water baptism is a powerful symbol in the New Testament of the believer's deliverance from judgment through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The symbol, water baptism, without the substance, a heart faith in the finished work of Christ, is an empty symbol. The reality, the new birth, wrought inwardly by the Holy Spirit, falls short of one of God's intended purposes, namely public profession of faith through the waters of baptism, when the God-ordained ordinance of baptism is neglected. Water baptism is important, not as a means of salvation, but as a testimony of God's gracious work in the heart. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so the way Christ told us to say so. Well, I'll say so the way I want to say so. Are you really a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, baptism doesn't save. No, it doesn't. Have you been saved? Yes. Well, then why don't you say so the way Christ told you to say so? Well, I want to do it my way. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And that brings us then to consider some important implications, and I'll cover these. This teaches us the extreme importance of water baptism for every believer in Christ. For everyone who believes, for everyone who believes he has experienced a new birth. For everyone who considers himself a Christian, for everyone who wants others to consider him a Christian. Why should others consider you a Christian if you're not willing to submit to water baptism? That's the way Christ told us to identify 
who the Christians are. It's not an infallible thing because people can can profess faith in Christ and be baptized without true faith in their heart. It's true, we can't see the heart, but this is the way that God told the church to identify members of the church. Christ said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, including water baptism for believers. It's a command of Christ to be baptized in water. God appointed the way to publicly profess Christ. Nothing else can properly replace this. Other confessions should and can be added to this, but nothing can replace it. You can't say that I have professed Christ, I am a professing believer, if you haven't professed Christ the way Christ said to profess him. Baptism is a sign, a mark of the new covenant. Baptism is a doorway into the church. The identifying mark of Christian discipleship. The prerequisite to church fellowship, including the Lord's table. You see that in Acts 2. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and the Lord added to the church 3,000 souls. And then they that were that believed his word and were baptized continued in the apostles' doctrine and prayer and the breaking of bread and prayers and fellowship and so forth. There is a sequence here. There's an order. And baptism is what marks those who are now members of the visible church and who are admitted to the privileges of the visible church. Now, what about the objections to submitting to water baptism? I've already dealt with some. Some would say, well, it's not necessary for salvation. True. But it is necessary to become an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. When you're talking about is baptism necessary, you have to define what we're talking about necessary for what? Is it necessary for salvation? No. Is it necessary to be an obedient Christian? Yes. Is it necessary to claim to be a Christian? Yes. Is it necessary for you to expect others to accept your claim to be a Christian? Yes. Without that, you really have no basis to ask others to accept your claim that you are a Christian. Well, I'm not baptized because there's a lot of disagreement among Christians about the way of baptism and what it means and so forth. True. But you're responsible for the light, the truth that God has given you. The truth is you've been helped and aided by the Holy Spirit to understand it. You're responsible to be obedient to that truth. Well, I'm not sure I'm ready to join the church. I'm not sure if I'm going to stay in this area, and so I won't be baptized here. Well, the answer to that is very simple. You are baptized and become a part of the church where you are. When you move, you become a part of the church where you go. It's as simple as it can be, and that's the way it ought to be. There is that way. There is an orderly transfer of members from one church to another. But if you have been saved by the grace of God, then you need to publicly say so and enter into the new covenant life of the church where you are.
until such time as God moves you. So, back to the beginning of why this text was given. It was given, number one, so that we could be encouraged. Remember, it was given to remind us that God preserves his children safely through trials and difficulties, and he judges the unbelievers. So be encouraged by that. Number two, be obedient. This is a reminder of how important it is to be obedient to the commands of the Lord. And so let us honor him through our obedience. Shall we pray? O Lord, as we have wrestled with this difficult text, we have wrestled with a difficult practice that has become difficult because of the lack of teaching, lack of clarity, diversity, wrong teaching about baptismal regeneration and many other things that cloud the issue in our day. Lord, we know we can't be responsible for what everybody else believes and teaches, but we can be responsible for what you have taught us by your word. And Lord, help us, therefore, to gladly embrace that which you have given and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in our obedience. For we ask it in his name.